Well, I certainly hope we don't hear anything from Russ. He's well known for putting the least amount of thought into the greatest amount of words, and <laughs> we're going to need a miracle tonight because I need to put the greatest amount of thought into the, the least amount of words. I'm glad there's no clock up there. Maybe you won't, won't hold me accountable. I, I hear somebody talking, but I, I can't see that far away. Somebody may have to throw something. The message tonight could be titled, What in the World is Going On? Should we have seen it coming? Or in simple terms, can we know the future? Of course, we know the answer. The answer is, of course. And, you know, even technology is catching up to some of this. I was reading a few weeks back... The news release was in February that researchers at Microsoft and at Technion Israel at the Institute of Technology in Haifa, they've actually developed software which harvests news reports off of the, the web and makes predictions. And they're claiming 70 to 90% accuracy. Now it's short term. There's something similar at MIT and they're doing it off of social networks like Facebook and Twitter. In truth, it doesn't tell the future, although it certainly appears to. It gives advance warning of what might happen tomorrow or next week. It's uh, really not the future. It's just an early view of something that's already transpiring. Well, we're going to talk about more supernatural ways of predicting the future. A prediction is a Latin word, pre, meaning before, and diction, speaking. And before we speak it or we see it, it's, it's been pronounced to us. And we know there's really only one source for that. We hear a lot about astrology and this past December, the Mayan debacle with the New Agers. The Mayans didn't say that. That was a New Age thing. But, or how about Nostradamus? In 1981, um, Orson Welles uh, narrated a movie was called the man who saw tomorrow. Um, he didn't think much of it. He said you could get just as good information out of the phone book with that data as from Nostradamus. Um, we had the like of Gene Dixon, Edgar Casey, and um, oh yes, the amazing Criswell who made some really astounding predictions. And all of them were just totally debunked upon examination. We could look at the religions of the world, um, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Islamic, Tao, Shinto, and all the other religious philosophies, they don't give measurable prophecy and for a simple reason. They can't record future events because they're locked here in time along with the rest of us mere mortals. They don't have access to divine revelation from a God who exists outside of, e of, of time. He lives in eternity. But I do want to talk about what the Bible says. Obviously, that's why we're here at the Bible Chapel. And the Bible, amazingly, is over 26% of its prophecy. Somebody who's done the number says 26.8% of the verses in the Bible are prophecy. It's granted some of them are a little obscure, and we don't see them till after the fact, but some of them are real doozies. Uh, and, of course, there's those that misuse Bible prophecy uh, for a various uh, number of reasons. Some sincerely, back in the 1800s, there was... Um, William Miller uh, was a Baptist pastor who got all wadded up and sideways with Scripture and, and just took it in directions he shouldn't have. And many uh, cults came out of that. Uh, the Christadelphians, the uh, Jehovah's Witness, 
and even all the, the various flavors of the Seventh-day Adventists. And they had splits amongst themselves because they all disagreed. And they all made all kinds of prophecies and predictions which did not come true, however sincere they might have been, and even generally good people in many cases. We, of course, have the Mormons. They've made many of their predictions that have not come true, and they've got, say, no, many of them are still future. And we have the pseudo-Christians, like this Harold Camping fellow that over the last several decades had made numerous prophecies about the rapture and the end of the world, and, um, of course, it didn't come to pass. Each of these groups, at least in a portion, claims the Bible as um, at least somewhat of a reference for them. So we have to ask, how can we tell who's a, a real prophet, one we should pay attention, and those whom we should not pay attention to? And it's no surprise that we need to ask that question. Jesus himself in Matthew 7 warned us that there'll be many false prophets arise, uh, many in sheep's clothing, but yet inside the ravenous wolves. Paul gave us numerous warnings and telling us Satan can present himself as an angel of light. It's no wonder that his servants can present themselves as ministers of righteousness. Uh, John said that many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jude spent the majority of his little letter talking about false prophets. He'd have rather talked about things of salvation, but he felt compelled to tell us to contend for the faith that we not be taken in by those who seek after the way of Cain. What did Cain do? He went after, he did his own thing the way he wanted to do it. Or those who sought after monetary gain like, um, like Balaam. Well, there are some specific tests that were given in Scripture that allow us to really in a rather simple fashion determine if somebody's a prophet from God or not. Uh, two chapters in Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter uh, gives us a simple admonition any prophet, no matter what they say, if they entice you to worship other gods, and that would even include a false representation of the true God, well, it doesn't matter what they said or even if it comes true. We're to ignore them. They're a false prophet. They're enticing us to worship other gods. And many of the cults today will do that. They will try to tell you, oh, yeah, we want to worship Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, we have another simple little test. God says if a prophet speaks a word and it doesn't come to pass, he speaks presumptuously. It's not for me. You don't have to fear him. But God takes false prophets very seriously in the 20th verse of that chapter. He tells us what to do with false prophets, and that's put them to death. Of course, we, we better leave that for others. There are real prophets, and when we identify them, we have to decide what are we going to do. We can, you know, we can learn from two groups in ancient history. Uh, the Ninevites listened to a prophet who didn't want them to listen to him. Uh, they listened to what God said through the prophet and were saved. And there was another group who for 120 years listened to the preaching of righteousness of Noah and rejected it and they were lost. Well, uh, time allowing, I want to get into a couple of prophecies that, as they say, they're really just ripped right out of the headlines. We'll, we'll go to um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 a little later. And uh, I want to discuss Psalm 83 as well. Before we dig into them, I'll just go through a, a, some items in the Bible just to lift our level of excitement and, and see some of the proofs that God has given us. He wants us to use our brain to reason these things out, to have a reason, a rational reason given by him uh, to know why we should follow him and pay attention to everything he says. Uh, the Bible does give us a way to measure its accuracy and its truthfulness, and that's past performance. 
God says about uh, himself in prophecy, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It's from Isaiah, the 46th chapter, 9 and 10. And you know, in the New Testament, Jesus gives us a similar insight into uh, prophecy coming from and, and explains why. He says, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. In John uh, 13, 19, he's speaking to his disciples. Finally, God makes a statement about himself that applies to all this in Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Well, if God really does give proof, and we can measure it, and we see it in accurate, reliable execution of prophecies foretold long before the events, why is it people seek answers everywhere except the Bible? And there's a pretty simple answer for that. If they accept the Bible, and its accuracy as touching on prophecy, well, by extension, they're going to be compelled to accept the Bible for accuracy on everything. And from the moral implications are just repugnant to them. It's, it's distasteful and not palatable to them. But you know, if we're going to be logical, we have to accept things based on whether they're true or not, not whether we like its taste, whether it's a pleasant message. It has to be what is the truth. And, you know, another reason people don't accept the Bible, of course, is the educational systems today, they all attack the Bible and, and chalk it up to being nothing but fables, full of errors, which isn't true. And, you know, it, it would be laughable if you consider it that as good as science is and as many wonderful things as they've designed and learned and proclaimed for us, every couple of years or so, they've got to replace their science books because what they wrote as being truth two years ago, they've suddenly have found that, well, that's not the case, and they sweep it under the rug and move on. And then there's, of course, people who read the Bible and still come away unimpressed, unconvinced, and unsatisfied, even though they went for it looking for answers. And the Bible tells us why that happens. First uh, Corinthians 2.14 admits, look, the Bible is a difficult bo uh, book. It's spiritually discerned, so natural man doesn't receive it. But we know by Scripture that that's not to dissuade people from reading it. As far as I know, last time I checked, Isaiah 55 is still in the Bible. And although God admits, look, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than yours, and yet he goes on to encourage us to read Scripture. He says, just like the rain and the snow fall upon the, the hillsides and the valleys and bring forth the abundance, seed for the sower and grain for the baker, so my word will not go out and return to me void without accomplishing that for which I sent it forth. You know, Romans 10:17 tells us how to acquire that, you know, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if we follow that trail backwards, we'll end up where we need to be. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we spend time in the word of God, we'll, we'll find that our, our hearing improves. And when our hearing improves and we read and understand, our faith is built up because we see the hand of God at work. And finally, God isn't hiding. He, the promise in Jeremiah 29, 13, that if you search me with all your heart and all your soul is applicable today and to all peoples. Yeah, I know it was written to the, 
Israelites, but they were the model being held up for us to follow. God's not hiding. Indeed, in the parables of Jesus, we can see some hints of this as well, this whole thing about difficult and understanding. And I, I, my own personal belief is I, I think it's an act of mercy. When the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables, he said because them using their ears but not hearing, them using their eyes and not seeing, well, he knows their heart. He knows they're not really searching for the truth. They came for a free meal or to see a miracle or something else. And rather than give them an understanding of the truth, which is going to hold them to a higher standard of judgment, he just lets them continue on in their uh, ignorance. Uh, that's just my, my personal take on it. You, your mileage may vary. Well, a, a quick look at some biblical proofs and prophecy. You know, there are many of them that we're aware of. But for those who haven't looked at it before, it's pretty astounding. Uh, the, the diaspora, the, the, the scattering of the Jews was predicted in Deuteronomy 28, 64, 1,400 years before Christ. And it was if they didn't follow God, if they followed other gods, he was going to scatter them. And that was carried out in 721 B.C., 586 B.C. by the Babylonians and by the Romans in 70 A.D. and then utterly shattered in 135 A.D. And they ceased to be a nation. Uh, the crucifixion of Messiah, we can see that picture in the, it's a difficult passage to read, Psalm 22. Here's a, here's a, a very straightforward, descriptive um, passage about the crucifixion. 750 years before crucifixion even came into being at the hands of the Persians, and a thousand years before Christ. Uh, the destruction of Tyre and Sidon is another one. It's just it's it's phenomenal to read for somebody who's not a believer. If you take them and show them some of this, it's because they can see it in Scripture and they can also look at secular history and see that this came to be. Uh, Joel wrote about it. I think it was eight, about 835 years before Christ, unless you're a liberal theologian, and then it was more like 400 years. Um, it was also written about by Ezekiel in the 26th chapter, about 580 years before Christ, and it was just a few years after Ezekiel wrote that. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and defeated Sidon, and then he defeated the, the city of Tyre on the coast. But it was only partially fulfilled because he never defeated the offshore city of Tyre. He was frustrated in that. But you know, in 332 BC, Alexander the Great came along, defeated Sidon, defeated and destroyed Tyre on the, on the coast. But then he made an entreat of peace to the city offshore and just asked to come out and make a sacrifice. And their response to him was... Um, it infuriated him. He literally scraped all the debris from the coastland where the city had stood and built a causeway to the island and destroyed it, uh, exactly as Ezekiel had pictured it, like a bald head. I'm getting pretty close to that myself, but like a bald head, nothing left. It's good for nothing but drying nets. And an unbeliever could look at this and see that this came true. Even in secular history, if you just study what Alexander did, another one about the same time would be the the, the fall of Babylon to Cyrus the Great. I often use this to, to share with unbelievers because there's lots of secular history to document what transpired. 150 years before uh, Cyrus was born and 170 years before this prophecy was fulfilled, God called him out by name. He even said, I, I give you your surname. He speaks how I'll dry up your rivers. And by you, you'll rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And we could read Ezra, the first opening 
verses of Ezra, and it talks about that. But again, there's secular history. Um, Flavius Josephus wrote all about this, and he, he pointed out that the Jews even came out of the city of Babylon to Cyrus and showed him the prophecy from Isaiah. And perhaps that was changed his heart. And he's the first one that history records is writing a manifesto about human rights. I don't think we're going to see him in heaven because he also worshipped many other gods, including Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. And those priests there also recorded all this on a cylinder of clay, which you can see in the Museum of Ancient History in London. Uh, there's another one, the, the, the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem given by Jesus in Luke 21. I know this often gets lumped in with the Olivet Discourse, but it's really a, se a, a separate... Um, time that he's spending with, with his disciples in Matthew 24 on the Mount of Olives. Here in Luke 21, he's outside the temple. He's speaking to the masses and his disciples. He uses some of the same language. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all these things leading up, but that's not the end. And Matthew says, after these things, and then he goes on to speak about the actual end time events. But in Luke, he says, before these things. And then he gives them a warning. He says, when you see the city compassed about by armies, flee. And you know, going back to Josephus, that's exactly what happened 70 AD. 38 years after Christ gave this prophecy, I think it's interesting, 38 years. If you go back to Deuteronomy 2, we find out that after the disobedience of the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea, they wanted for actually 38 years in, in the wilderness and I haven't done a full study on the comparisons there, but I thought it was very interesting. In any case, Flavius Josephus was right there as the city was encompassed about. He was taken captive at the beginning of, I believe, uh, 69 uh, AD, but he told the general, hey, you're going to be the emperor. And while they were preparing to attack the city, well, the emperor in Rome died. And the general went back to Rome, and lo and behold, he became the emperor. But he gave his son Titus, who was there at the city, go ahead and finish what we started. So they were camped around that city for a year. And Josephus records in his writings of history that well over a million Jews were slaughtered. Over 500,000, I believe it was, went, were sold into slavery. But he makes the note, no Christians died. And the reason they didn't die is they remembered what Jesus said in Luke 21 and they fled. That whole year while the army was camped around and not attacking, they went to the Decapolis up northeast of the Sea of Galilee, primarily to the city of Pella. And history records that the Christians weren't in Jerusalem when it was sacked and destroyed. Uh, the last of the super signs, or this one's called the super sign of the 20th century, and that, of course, would be the birth of the nation Israel. Um, that famous question, can a nation be born in a day, Isaiah 66, 8? And, of course, it can. Ezekiel 36 and 37 really chronicle the regathering together of, uh, of the Jews into the Promised Land. It really starts with the 33rd chapter, but it culminates in 36, 37. 37, of course, is the chapter of the, the, the Valley of the Dry Bones. What a great word picture of a, a dead and rotted nation, uh, those who were um, scattered and functionally uh, a dead peoples, and yet they're gathered together. And we've seen that just here in the last century less than 100 years ago. Well, I'm going to move into, as I said, um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 and in Psalm 83. And um, I, I've let the secret out of the, 
out of the bag there. I, I was going to say, you know what's going to happen next? War in the Middle East. I know you'd think, what do you think you are, Sherlock Holmes? You know, you know, but, but if we look at some of the details, there's some amazing things that are happening. Even as I'm speaking to you, within just the last few days, um, long after I started putting this message together, as the Lord kind of laid on my heart a thing about prophecy and how it impacts us and how we should behave, these things have been coming together. I, I suspect some, some of this may happen within the next few days or few weeks. We're always supposed to be looking up, but when we do start to see things happen around us, like I said, we, we should really start paying attention. Um, I'm, I'm going to cover these two passages, and I think it portrays two uh, short wars in rapid succession in, that involve Israel and the nations and peoples who surround her. Uh, this first war is going to bring defeat and almost complete marginalization of the peoples who form an inner ring of peoples around, in and around Israel. Um, it'll be pro this war will be prosecuted by those who hate Israel, and this hatred is manifested in their stated goal of annihilation of not only the state of Israel, but the Jews themselves. They want to make their name so that it's remembered no more. We, we know we hear that from many of these groups in and around Israel. That's their stated goal. It's not for loot. They just they want to destroy the, the Israelites. They hate them. And they want to take the land and make it another Islamic state. Israel is, going to, Israel is going to vanquish the opponents in this battle, and by their own hand, I think God's going to strengthen them to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded that you talk to most people that go to Israel, they'll say, well, you see these T-shirts all over the place saying, attack us again, we need the real estate. And, you know, we chortle a little bit about it. It, it. It's kind of sad, but it's also true. Every time there's a battle, Israel gets more land. I suspect this first war will also bring to, um, just my, again, my own personal take on it. I think it's going to fulfill the Isaiah 17 prophecy where Damascus is going to cease to be a city, where it's going to be made a heap of rubble. Uh, towards the end of that prophecy, it says that there's terror at night, and in the morning they are no more. Um, it's kind of a picture of the, the use of nuclear weapons. And this one, I, th I think, just a regular standard nuclear weapon, because I'm going to talk about some other rather newer weapons that have some astounding capabilities. Um, I don't think that's going to happen at the, 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 the Zechariah 14 even pictures this. So that while they're standing on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And even though that's in a portion of Scripture that seems to be right at the Millennial Kingdom, I don't think that's when that happens because Judah's fighting in that battle. Again, your mileage may vary on this, but I think it's a picture of what's happening in this Psalm 83 war. I believe they're going to use neutron bombs. Israel, uh, by the accounts of the people that are in the know, uh, suspect that Israel has the most sophisticated arsenal of neutron weapons. A neutron weapon is a nuclear device, but it has a very, in comparison, a very low blast signature and, and heat signature. It primarily is a high pulse gamma radiation that is designed to kill flesh. And yet it, by and large, leaves structure, weapons, and things um, fully functional. So this will kill the warriors and leave their weapons. It also has a very short period of radioactive contamination. You can go in almost immediately. And um, they have some that reportedly that are as small as baseballs. I've seen some of the, the, the artillery rounds are, are also very small, some of them perhaps that size. Um, 
And as I said, this first war is spelled out in, in Psalm 83. The second war is going to bring a similar defeat and great destruction, but this is going to be, I believe, to the outer ring of nations, the ones spoken up in um, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, it's going to bring destruction not only to their armies. Uh, in, the, in the King James it says, I, I leave but a sixth of you. A sixth you is, is the term. It would be like us saying, I'm going to decimate you. That would be dividing into ten. Well, in the Hebrew, I'll sixth you. Uh, but it also talks about raining destruction and fire on their homelands, and it's there's a, kind of an indication here that America might suffer that, not because they're attacking Israel, but because Russia and the U.S. perhaps exchange nuclear uh, weapons. God's plan in this battle is to reveal himself to the nations of the world. For that reason, I, I don't think this can possibly be Armageddon. There are, there are very good biblical scholars who place it there. I, I don't think that's possible. In, in Armageddon, the nations of the world know who God is, and in their delusion, they're coming to make war against him. Um, the first war was based on hatred and a desire to annihilate Israel. Uh, this second war, although these people hate Israel as well, they're coming to spoil the land, uh, to, to take its goods, to loot, and to get all the acquired wealth that this land, which is once a wasteland, has now acquired. Even the onlookers, uh, uh, Sheba, Dedan, and Tarshish, bear witness that it's, it's an act of, of looting that's taking place. And again, this, this second war is described in Ezekiel 38, and in just a minute we'll read it. I'm really not going to go through all the names of the nations, um, Gog and Magog. I, I agree with most of the scholars is Russia. Um, I would say that there's an there's a obscure passage Obscure because it's only in the Septuagint, which is what the early church used, the Greek uh, Old Testament. In Amos chapter 7, there's a prophecy that it appears that God changes his mind. He's going to send locusts to destroy the land. And in the Septuagint, it points out that, the, that these locusts have a king, and his name is Gog. But we know from Proverbs 30, 27, that locusts don't have a king. So when we see that, it's a picture of a of a demonic or satanic leader. It's sort of like Ezekiel 28, where you have the king of Tyre, and then you have the king behind the king of Tyre, which is Satan. Uh, in any case, um, Gog, I think to me, is clearly Russia, and the other nations are, again, the outer ring of nations around them. Ezekiel is somewhat, or really quite chronological in order. We have the 33rd through the 37th chapters, of the regathering of Israel into the land. We have 40 through 48, which is the millennial temple. And sandwiched right in between that, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And uh, that's, of course, where we are now. Well, let me read through at least a portion of Ezekiel 38 39 and see if I can make this happen. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses, and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. And that word swords is, is weapons. Uh, it doesn't have to be a sword, but that's what it's picturing. Persia, Ethiopia, and Put, with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, uh, with all its troops, Beth Togermaw, um, 
from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be, and this is speaking back to Gog of Magog, be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies. And we see today that Russia is arming all of these nations that are spoken of here. Uh, your companies that are assembled about you and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. And you will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, it will, it will come about on that day that your thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of those living without walls and having no bars or gates. And we get into verse 12, it talks about again the motive to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited, against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. We know that God considers Jerusalem the center of the world, and here we have it pictured again. Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, with all its villages, will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder? to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil. Again, it's all about stealing from the land of Israel. You know, they've discovered vast quantities of natural gas, and there's all, every indication there's quite a bit of oil there. Um, Russia and the others, they're going to come. They're going to want to take that. He goes on to speak here about how he will come into the land. He talks about bringing uh, all of them riding horses. The Hebrew word is sus, which literally translated as leaper. In Jeremiah, it's translated as bird or something that flies. Other places, it's translated as charioteer. So it would be one who drives a chariot. It talks about, the, you know, Merkabah is the, is the word for chariot in, in uh, Hebrew, and that's what they call their main battle tank today. Uh, God goes on to talk about how um, he's going to feed them. He's gonna, his, his fury is going to rise up, and he's going to feed them to the animals, uh, to the beasts of the air, and he's going to cause a great earthquake. We know they're going to be utterly destroyed. And he makes reference uh, here to what I think was that uh, passage in Amos in verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days? through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them. In verse 21, he says, I'm going to call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Again, another reason I think that this is not the battle of Armageddon. God's just going to slay him. He's not going to have, he's, there's not going to be war. With the word of his mouth, he's going to slay him. And he goes on to talk about the, the judgments of pestilence and blood and, and, and hail and fire and brimstone falling down upon him. And he again says, I'm going I'm to magnify myself in the, in the eyes of the world through what I do to you. In the, uh, moving into chapter 39 again, he just talks about drawing them out of the north. And this is where he says, I will turn you around and leave but a sixth of you and drive you on up into the remotest parts of the north. 
Verse 3, it says, And I will strike your launcher. I forget the Hebrew word, but it means launcher. If you're using an arrow, the launcher would be a bow. But it could, the word arrow in the end of the, uh, the verse, and I will dash down your arrows from your right hand, that just means weapon which is hurled. It, it, it could be a, an arrow, it could be a javelin or a spear. So we could rightly read this, and I will strike your launcher from your left hand and dash down your missiles from your right hand. And he talks about him falling in the open field and uh, his name won't be profaned anymore. And it's, he says, it shall be done. Uh, that is the day of which I have spoken. Uh, there's no repentance. God is going to bring this to uh, completion. Uh, verses 9 and 10 talk about how that the Israelites are going to go out and gather the weapons and they're going to burn these for seven years. And now, um, this is the part, warning signs here. I'm going I'm to talk about opinion. Uh, my opinion is this is going to take place three and a half years before the tribulation begins. I also suspect that the rapture is going to happen at the same time. I'm not setting dates, and I'm not saying that's when it's going to happen, but just looking at what Scripture says, it makes sense. Now, that should make warning flags go up, I suppose. But um, if you ask any Christian nowadays what starts the tribulation, they say, well, the rapture of the church. But that's not correct. It's, it's the signing of a seven-year treaty. If this war happens three and a half years before the tribulation begins and the rapture happens at the same time, Israel will be in the land and will be able to use the, the fuel, nuclear fuel and other stuff for seven years before being driven out of the land at, at what? The abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist goes into the, uh, the temple and sets himself up as Christ and says, worship me, the world's going to say, well, seven years ago was a rapture. We've just been through seven years of tribulation. You're gonna, I, that's, again, that's opinion. But it talks about here also then about the burial process. This is almost textbook out of, out of training manuals today on how to deal with the aftermath of nuclear war, biological or chemical warfare. It's going to talk about how they're going to spend this time. In the Hebrew, it actually seems like it's, they're going to wait seven months before they begin the search, and they're going to spend seven months searching and burying and they're going to set apart, in verse 14, set apart men who will be uh, constantly passed through the land, burying those who are passing through. Anybody else who sees a bone isn't going to touch it. They're just going to set a marker, and these professionals are going to go bury it. Again, seems to speak of nuclear warfare or perhaps biological. Um, so we have this picture of this, this battle that God says it's going to happen. We have all the players in place. And... That in and of itself is pretty amazing because it's taken some recent political and ideological changes for that to come about. You know, in the history of the world, Iran and Russia have never been allies. Iran was under the thumb of the Tsars for a while and suffered under some dealings with uh, even the Bolsheviks, but they've never been allies. You can really call them allies today. Same thing for Turkey. You know, that was one of the things that People refused to say Togermaw or Meshach and Tubal were part of Turkey because, well, they're not part of this group. They're not in there. They're allies with Israel. Well, you know, Turkey has experienced a massive shift in the last couple of years from a secular state to a, a strident Islamic nation, getting more fundamentalist all the time. And in, in just a few weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, I read um, a comment that that day had been made by the Turkish foreign minister, I know I'll butcher his name, Ahmet Davutoglu. 
He stated that the 1916 Sykes Agreement was becoming obsolete. That was the agreement that was formed in 1916 when the Britons defeated the Ottoman Turks. And it set up all these, these borders that exist now in the Middle East. He said that agreement is becoming obsolete and with it the artificial borders it imposed upon the Middle East. The Arab Spring or maybe the Arab Winter um, bears witness to that. He went on to indicate that he believes the Ottoman Empire is rising from the ashes, that the, the Turks are going to take over, they're going to rule the Islamic world, they're going to they're going to be the new caliphate. And that startling change of intent, beliefs, and vision provides a strong rationale for Turkey to join in this group attacking Israel when just two years ago they were an ally of Israel. But there's still one problem that will prevent the Gog-Magog war from occurring. And we read it in Ezekiel uh, 38, and that's that Israel will be dwelling not only securely, where their Hebrew word is Baruch, it means confidently, but also in unwalled villages without gates and without iron bars. And that's not the case now. There's a 30-foot high wall, 430 miles in length that circles most of the nation. It's put up, they, they not allow snipers to shoot in, and they have gates and that to control ingress, egress of all the people that come in and out of the nation. That's got to disappear. And that's where the Psalm 83 war, I believe, is going to come in uh, to play. So if Ezekiel 38, 39 is close, and uh, I, it could happen at any moment other than this portion of prophecy, then Psalm 83 is even closer, if my view on this is correct. Uh, just like in the names in Ezekiel 38, 39, Psalm 83 speaks of ancient peoples. The Spirit knew that the names of the locales would change, but those people who dwelt in them would tell us what areas they are. And it includes the, the tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagarites or Hagarines, which would be the Egyptians, uh, Gibal, Ammon, Amalek. All these are the people that dwell in and around Israel today. And there's been recent political and ideological changes in this group of people that uh, have affected the likelihood of this occurring as well. You know, Assad, uh, of the president of Syria said he would welcome any attack by any group which would begin to repatriate the Golan Heights to Syria. And strategists around the world are fearing that he's going to use weapons of mass destruction just to elicit a resp military response from Israel and then he concludes that would draw all Muslims into the war. Assad has also said, warned Israel and the world that if Israel attacks uh, Syria, any of their assets, no matter where they are, including those inside Lebanon delivering weapons, he's going to attack Israel. They just took delivery on the, finally, on the S-300 missile defense system from Russia. Uh, ostensibly, that has the capability to shut down, uh, to shoot down an aircraft virtually anywhere over the, except the extreme southern reaches of Israel. Uh, just a few days, like five days ago, Egypt openly rebuked and threatened Iran uh, regarding Iran's support for the Assad regime. The Assad regime is the one group that's out of sync with the rest of this group I'm talking about. His, uh, he's a Shiite, and Iran, being Shiite, is supporting him, and Hezbollah as well, trying to help him stay in power, and Egypt is supporting the Sunnis. 
Assad is, uh, he may realize his only chance for survival is to start this war and to get all the uh, Arabs, or all the uh, Muslim nations to join him. And he, he's calling, trying to call into uh, present uh, a manifestation of an old saw. The Arab says, me against my brother, my brother and I against our cousin, my brother, my cousin and I against the world. And that's what Assad is wanting to uh, have happen. But I think the bitter uh, ideological separation between the Shiites and Sunnis is not going to let that happen. And Iran is not in this prophecy in Psalm 83. And I believe they're going to sit the war out as, as, as the scripture here says. And that will solve two problems for Iran. It, they suspect that Israel will, in fact, defeat the Sunnis. That will take care of them for uh, Iran. And then Israel will also weaken themselves and spend much of their armament defending themselves. But I think Israel is going to handily handle this They're with neutron weapons and that. When Syria attacks them, probably with weapons of mass destruction, there's going to be a nuclear exchange. Uh, Damascus is going to be destroyed by a conventional nuclear weapon, and they'll destroy the rest of the armies with neutron bombs. Again, I'm doing some heavy speculation there. But scripture says this war is going to happen. Well, let me quickly just read uh, a little bit out of uh, Psalm 83. O God, O God, do not be quiet, do not be silent, o, and O God, do not be still. For behold, thy enemies make an uproar, and those who hate thee have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against thy people and conspire together against thy treasured ones. They have said, Come, and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against thee do they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites and the Moab and the Hagarites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. There's a few verses here where Asaph is calling God, do what you did in the old days to the Midianites with uh, Barak and, and Deborah uh, against the Canaanites and with uh, Gideon against the, the, the Midianites. And he finishes up saying, Oh God, make them like a whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with thy tempest and terrify them with thy storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that thou alone, whose name is the Lord, art the most high over all the earth. The completion, I believe, of this war of Psalm 83 will, will put Israel in a position where they're living outside that, that wall. They will be the superpower of the Middle East, um, and that will induce the others to attack them. It will remove the one portion of prophecy that presents a problem for Ezekiel 38 and 39 being carried out today. Well, if all this is true, and we know that prophecy is true, what should our response be? Well, as believers, it should just, again, call to attention that time is short. Many of these things I told you tonight are happening right now. Does, does that mean it's got to happen this week or this month or this year? No, but I think we'd be foolish to put it off too far. I, I think it's, it's going to happen in very short order. Well, what does the Bible say about individuals who don't have peace with God? 
Well, it says we're sinners, and that's our condition. And, you, you know, you're a nice-looking crowd, and if I point the finger out at you, as I often say, I could call you sinners and it'd be true, but, of course, I'd have to deal with the three fingers I got pointing back to myself. We all have this condition, and there's a consequence for that condition. It's called death. The wages of sin is death. You know, I go to my, my job. My employer has an agreement with me that for every hour I put in, he'll give me X amount of dollars, and I, I'm grateful for that being paid, but here we have the Bible saying the wages of sin is death. We've sinned. We are going to suffer the consequences. We'll have to pay with death. But then there's a call, a call of love that comes from a God who desires our presence in, in, in heaven. John 3.16 really says it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that really announces the cure, the cure for the condition, the cure for the consequences. It's the manifestation of that call of love that God extends to us an opportunity to come to salvation. Well, we must decide to believe what God tells us. As believers, believe and be obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. For the unbelievers, they have to take this admonition seriously. You know, the promise in 1 John 5, 13 is, These things I have written to you believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And the simple truth is, if you don't know that you have eternal life, it's simply not safe to die. Uh, true, there are some who have doubts that may well be saved, but they don't have the assurance of eternal security. If that's the case for somebody here, let's talk. Uh, the scripture's really clear. But for most people, if they're, they're not sure, there's a really good chance they're not going to heaven. And, they got to get this settled out because it's just not safe to die. So my encouragement for those here and those who hear this, come to a saving knowledge of the Savior. Respond. Jesus said, you can trust my Father. Listen to him. He says, if you hear my words and believe in him who sent me, you'll have everlasting life. You'll not come into judgment, but have already passed from death into life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Scripture. We thank you that you... Tell us the beginning from the end that we might have reason to have confidence in what you have promised. We give thanks for an empty tomb and a risen Savior. His resurrection, what glorious proof that you found his sacrifice acceptable. Romans 4.25 told us, Father, that he was delivered up because of our sin, but he was resurrected because of our justification, and we give thanks for that. We pray that your word will continue to go forth and not return void. We pray that you will give us opportunities to speak to the lost. Now speak to our hearts as we see this prophecy and as we watch it unfold before us. Let us be filled with awe, with perhaps even a little fear that it might motivate us to be obedient servants. We, we glorify your name. We seek to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we give thanks. Amen.